Welcome to the Grace Fellowship Church of Ephrata podcast. Our desire is to help you grow in your journey with Jesus, no matter where you are. For more information, please check out our website at www.gfchurch.net. A healthy church is creating new leaders. Period. A healthy church is creating new leaders. If you are a part of a church, and when it comes to nominating, you know, new leadership or anything like that, it's the same list of the same people all the time and it never changes, you need to do some really, really intense look inside of your church as to what's going wrong because we're not bringing up leaders. Part of our goal as leaders in this church, Ephesians 4, is that we are preparing people for acts of ministry, that we're bringing up leaders as well within our church, that new ones are given chances. There may be people that come up and uh, we see the gift of maybe teaching in them and, and we give them an opportunity, whether it's in a class or maybe up here on a Sunday morning, and they may not be perfect, and you may sit there and think, wow, they aren't really polished. Yes, it's their first time. They're going to get better, though. Because I wasn't great the first time that I got to teach. We have to give opportunities for leaders to grow. That's a healthy church. When I was thinking about this this week, I have three questions that I want you to think about. And you can write this down in your bulletin if you have one or on a piece of paper just for your reflection. Three questions I want us all to think about this morning. Who are three of the best leaders you have ever known? Three of the best leaders. Uh, Apart from scripture, that's easy to go to. Well, Jesus was. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Who are three of the best leaders you can think of? This could be a, 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 a spiritual leader. This may be like a Billy Graham type or maybe a pastor you had at a church growing up. Um, it could be a spiritual leader like that. Uh, it could be a, a politician. I say the half tongue in cheek, but maybe it is. You know, maybe there was a great politician. You know, you look at someone in history like an Abraham Lincoln who was just this leader who walked into a tremendous risk and tremendous difficulty uh, through the Civil War and so on. Uh, so who are three of the greatest leaders you can think of? And once you have them down, you have to think about something else, though. And that's the second question. Well, what makes them a great leader? Is it just because someone told you they were a great leader? There has to be a reason that you say, well, this is why this person's great. It was something they did that made them great. You all and I have one of these when we talk about leaders. We have our measuring stick or your measuring tape. And if they measure up to what you think each of these markers on here is supposed to be, that makes them a great leader. Well, they had resolve. They were courageous. They this, that, the other thing. They treated people with respect and honor. All of us have it. And I would bet that as we talk about a measuring stick for what makes a great leader, all of ours would differ. There would be some things that would be the same. But for some of us, there's certain things we're looking for in a great leader that maybe some of you don't really care so much about. And the third question is this then. Well, then what are the results of their leadership? We talk about how they did things. That's, you know, what makes them a great leader. But third is, is what are the results of the leadership? Is there any results at all? Maybe it's life change. Maybe it's what they did. Maybe it's the fact that you are a Christian because of them. 
Maybe it's because you saw lives change. Maybe it's a product. If you put someone in the business world down, this is what makes this person a, a, a great, you know, leader is, you know, whatever. Steve Jobs, uh, you know, how many people have iPhones and all of this? You know, there's the product right there that tells about what a great leader. He moved from a garage in the 70s where he started his company, and now he's got phones in half of the people in the world's pocket. Um, what is the result of it? I ask you these three questions because they're important. We need to identify not just who great leaders are, but what makes them that and what is the result. Because if there's no results, I have to question if they're really a great leader. Right now, culturally, we're dealing with a leadership problem. Leadership scarcity. We have people that do not want to step up to lead. We have people that are not being great leaders at all. And you see this. I mean, you see this, unfortunately, in the church sometimes. You've seen leaders fall within the church. You've seen political issues. It's why I'm convinced that we are down to, it seems, so few candidates to vote for because nobody's stepping up and being a leader. Uh, We have so much uh, of an issue with coming and building up and bringing new leaders. Uh, I read an article. I actually sent it out to the elders this past week about the problem with pastors today. Um, There's very few people going into the pastorate out of college. The numbers keep going down and down and down. The average age of a pastor 20 years ago was 35 years old. When I was hired here in 2020, it was 45 years old. Wow, that worked out nice because that was my average age. I was actually technically a somewhat old pastor. Now, it's gotten up to about 48, 49 So if you want to see the average of what a pastor's age is in America, right here, okay? This is the average age. It used to be 35. And why is that? There's a problem. No one wants to go into ministry. No one's even being approached about going into ministry. And so churches are getting desperate. They're getting desperate to try to find pastors. Or they're going to video venue type where you have one person teaching and there's 20 campuses and so on. Um, There's a problem. The church needs to be creating leaders. I want you to think about what makes a good one. Because today we're going to see a great one. One we've been looking at the past couple weeks. But today we're going to see three points in particular of why Nehemiah was such a great leader. Our point this morning is this, that good leaders are known by their means and ends. They are known by how they do things, but also what the end result is. Now, that end result, we, some of us may say, well, that wasn't that big a deal. But we know the change that it brings. A good leader has several things about how they do things that lead to the ends. Uh, the reality is this. Not everybody is a great leader. And I would say this. This is a controversial statement, and I can unpack this with you sometime. I believe everybody in here is a leader. Every single one of you. You may be like, oh, no, I'm not a leader. If you raised children, you are a leader. If you taught a Sunday school class, you are a leader. If you ever had a discussion with somebody that changed their mind and you influenced them to change their mind, congratulations, you're a leader. I believe everybody has a capability of leadership. Some, yes, some of you are just dynamic and could be running a company. Maybe you do. But all of us have these little snippets of leadership in our life. And we want to make sure our means are great, 
but our ends are also something that please God. Uh, I, the reality is this. I could pick one of you. Um, who do I want to pick on? Nora. I'm going to pick on you briefly. Are you okay with that? I can get Nora up here, my daughter, okay? And I could put her up here. I could say, Nora, you're on the payroll of the church. Didn't tell Bob that. Um, you're on the payroll of the church. I'm going to give you a title for the position that you are on. Uh, and I'm going to give you an office. I'm going to give you a nameplate uh, and all of that. Does the paycheck, the title, the desk, the office make her a leader instantly? No. It's what she does before any of that hits that makes her a leader. Great leaders don't need those things to be a great leader. And Nehemiah was this. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. And here he is thrown into building a wall in Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up in chapter 5 today. I'm going to just say this right off. I started into this chapter this week, and it was one of those I was just going to cover all of it this week, and I was like, no, this has got too much stuff in it. So this is now uh, going to become a two-weeker uh, here uh, because there was so many things that I just, I get passionate about leadership because we need to be raising up leaders. Tyler needs to be raising up leaders in the youth ministry. We as the adults need to begin to empower youth and 20 and 30-somethings to take roles of leadership because if we don't, we set our expiration date and we limit what God can do in the life of individuals. We're going to look at chapter 5, the first uh, about 13 verses today. And we're going to start first um, uh, with something that happens. A crisis arises. Uh, last time uh, we talked, two weeks ago, we saw that Sanballat and some of the other leaders around Jerusalem are starting to threaten them. They're mocking them. They're trying to distract them, destroy them. We talked about resistance. Well, now problems are happening on the inside and a crisis arises. In, verse chap uh, in chapter 5, verse 2, it starts this way. There were those in Jerusalem who said, with our sons and daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Well, here's problem number one. Problem number one is this. There were big families in Jerusalem, and they're trying to feed their families while they're also building a wall. And the problem is, is they didn't have enough time to devote to getting food for their big families. And as a result, they're having a hard time feeding their family. This is problem number one. They need to feed their big families. Now, uh, it goes on. Verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. That's interesting. Famine. Nehemiah, this is the first time he's ever mentioned that there was a famine going on in the midst of this. You want to talk about making a hard life harder? Now there's a famine going on. And people are mortgaging their properties to get money so they can feed their families. Because they're doing their normal job, and they're also building a wall. This big vision that he has. The third uh, goes on. It says this, and there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Here's the third group. The third group has a problem. They're borrowing money to pay their taxes to King Artaxerxes. They're having to borrow money 
just to pay taxes. And some have gotten so desperate that they've begun to let their children, sell their children into slavery, daughters especially, who become second wives or concubines of people in this, this era, young girls, just to be able to pay a tax. And Nehemiah is getting blasted with these all at the same time. You want to talk about, oh man, all I want to do is build this wall and restore the glory of Jerusalem for the sake of God. And, and now all of this, now all this resistance, now we've got internal resistance going on. And on top of it, uh, here's another little kicker with this. As you read the context, you learn that the people who were helping cause this problem in here were the Jewish aristocracy, the, the powerful and the rich of the area. Now, this isn't a commentary on being rich and powerful. But the most powerful, the richest people in town were the ones who they were owing money to, they were selling their daughters and sons into slavery to. The Jewish powerful and rich, just like today, had a lot of sway over the people. This is a problem. This is their brothers and sisters. This is their fellow citizens. And they're holding them almost in captivity to how much money they owed or taking their fields with the mortgages and so on. This is a crisis. Nehemiah is going to have to step into it, and we will see in the following verses that he does. And this is really what brings us to what the first thing is that a good leader does. A good leader faces crisis instead of avoiding it. A good leader is going to face difficult situations, not cower, not look for, well, who can I blame this on? Hey, is there an easier way to get out of this? They will face a crisis head on. Uh, we can think of great examples throughout history of, of, of people who did difficult things. You know, we want a leader to be the person that will run into a burning house to save lives. There was a story recently about a, a man who was out working, no fancy job, and, and there's a picture of him, excuse me, uh, and he ran into a building and saved five children. Five children he got out of this, had burns as a result of it. We look at someone like that, we're like, that person was a leader. That's what I want my leaders to do. Run into the burning building. Save lives at, ex at the potential expense of themselves. That is what we want leaders to do. We don't want people who cower. We don't want people who buckle. We don't want people who are out of touch or trying to find somebody else to do it. We need them to face difficult times. A courageous leader is the one who says and does what everyone else is thinking. A courageous leader is the one who says and does what everyone else is thinking. They're the ones that are going to speak up and everyone else has like been thinking about it and they put it and then it's like, it's almost like the stress for relief for everyone where it's like, oh man, good, somebody said it because I've been thinking this for months. Uh, that's what a leader does. They face difficult things and don't cower in the book Next Generation Leader, a good read I recommend for leadership, uh, it said this about the courage of a leader facing crisis. Courage is essential to leadership because the first person to step out in a new direction is viewed as the leader. They are the ones who will take that first step. And there's others that are going to see them and say, let's go after them. Let's go after her. Let's go after him. We want to follow them. But they have to do that first step. They have to do that first step. Well, then I guess courage means they're not afraid of anything. 
Wrong, wrong. It goes on in this book. It says this, that courage is the willingness to move in a direction in spite of the emotions and thoughts that bid you to do otherwise. You know how this is. To do something courageous doesn't mean that you don't have fear. It means that despite the fear, I have to do this. I have to face this. I have to do it. Uh, uh, people are depending upon me. I think back as I was reading this about David and Goliath. You know, we all talk about David and Goliath, and I was reminded of it this past week because Goliath was on the back wall earlier this week because of Grace for Moms and the kids there. Apparently my son killed Goliath with a slingshot. It was pretty epic. Uh, but all this to say this. So you look at that story, if you're familiar with it. David is delivering food to his brothers who are with all of the armies of Israel, you know, the big tough guys. And you'd think that they would be the ones to say, we're going to take Goliath out. And this 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy comes in to deliver food, and they're cowering. And this 16-year-old boy had to be the one to face crisis and say, nope, something needs to be done. And if it isn't all of you guys who should be doing this, it'll be me. David was a courageous leader who faced difficulty, faced crisis. That is what we want in leaders. The chapter goes on in verse 6. Um, and uh, another thing happens, and that is a confrontation. Nehemiah, he sees the problem, and now he confronts the problem. In verse 6, uh, he says this, I was very angry when I heard about these three problems that we just talked about. And I heard their outcry in these words. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself. I took counsel with myself. That's, you know, basically saying I gave myself a timeout because I was ticked. You know how you have to walk away from something because you won't think rationally? That's what he did. He was angry. He was angry that the powerful Jewish, the rich Jewish people were actually, in Jerusalem were actually holding some of their fellow citizens into captivity and debt. He takes counsel with himself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Don't skim over that. Here Nehemiah is, this guy who just came to town months, maybe a year or so ago, and now he's taking on the, the powerful, the rich. He's taking them on. That's pretty risky. That's extremely risky because they could say, oh, you don't like what we're doing? How's about this? We're out of here. We'll buy an army to come take you out, Nehemiah. He was going up against the rich and the powerful. He says to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held, not only that, I held a great assembly against them. Nehemiah was not required to have an assembly to watch this trial and this accusation go down, but it seemed important to him to have people there to say, see, we're doing something. I'm doing this for you. He got a group of people together. Down in verse 9, he said this to these rich and powerful. So I said to them, said to them, the thing that you are doing isn't good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? That's an interesting motivation. You need to forgive debts and stop doing this because Samballot and all the ones that are around us that are mocking us and threatening us, this just gives them more to go off of, to make fun of, to mock, to harass we don't want to be a mockery in them. We want to show what God can do through people. We want to be faithful to him. And not only that, Nehemiah in this chapter points out the fact he's like, to, he looks at the rich and empowered. He says, you not too long ago were freed from exile. You were slaves to a nation. And now you're doing the exact same thing 
to your fellow citizens. That's hypocrisy. You didn't want to be in exile. Now you're doing the exact same thing. He calls them out. And that brings us to the second piece of leadership. Good leaders take risks instead of playing it safe. Good leaders have to take risk or they're not really leading at all. They have to do something that's a little bit on the dangerous side. This could go either way. Nehemiah did that. He confronts the rich and the powerful. They could have back, it could have totally have backfired on him. But something had to be done. He had to do it, and he had to go and do something hard. He could have said, hey, uh, rich and powerful, can we have, like, coffee over here at, uh, you know, the Starbucks? And uh, let's just talk through this. Hey, could you guys maybe, you know, lighten the load on them? No, he did not. He called them out in front of an assembly. That is tremendous risk. He calls them out, tells them to change their way. Something has to be done. A leader who does not, catch this, a leader who does not take a risk is a manager. A leader that doesn't ever take risk is just a manager. And I'm not condemning those of you that have management positions. I'm saying this. A leader in order to move people have to cause a little bit of discomfort and tension. Otherwise, everything's going to look the exact same in 20 years. Nothing will change. Leadership requires risk instead of playing it safe. You know, there is a time, in the case of Nehemiah, where maybe you do a little treatment to the problem. Nehemiah saw this as a time to do major surgery. This was going to be significant what he had to do. God wired leaders and the church to be risk takers. Yes, the church. Because if the church goes into management mode, the church dies. It just maintains. And eventually it's going to flame out. The church is wired for risk as is leaders. If you think of it in scripture, God never calls anyone in scripture that you can think of to do something easy. Those of the, if you look at the hall of faith in Hebrews, there is not one person on that list that God's like, well, hey, what I need you to do is uh, just take a desk job. You know? And you'll forward my kingdom that way. God never asked people to do easy things. Abram, I need you to pick up and I need you to leave your homeland to a country that I'm going to take you to. Oh yeah, your wife, she's going to have children, but it's going to be later on in life. So I just need you to hang in there and wait. Moses, oh Moses, hey, uh, you have a speech impediment. Uh, I know that, but I need you to be my spokesperson. I need you to go and take a million people out of Egypt from the most powerful man in the world. Take, him, take them and lead them out into the wilderness. I'll give you directions later. When did God ask you to do something easy? It takes risk. You know, I was thinking throughout history, the early church, it took risk for them to thrive under the Roman Empire and the tyranny at risk of being a faithful church, at risk of losing their life, being tortured, having their family killed. It took tremendous risk to do it for God's kingdom. It takes risk for a person, an Augustinian monk in the 1500s, to stand up to the most powerful man in the world, the Pope, to call him basically to repentance, to call him the Antichrist, and to say, I will stand on God's word, and to cause a reform in the church, a man known as Martin Luther. It takes risk for a German pacifist pastor in the 1940s in Germany to begin an act to try to somehow eliminate Hitler because of what he was doing to the Jews at risk of losing his own life, which he ultimately did, and a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
It takes risk for a book that I read, a, a pastor who bought land in Portland, Oregon, not exactly a place many of you want to go to, but Portland, Oregon, to plant a church because of the problems in Portland and did it in faith at risk of failure and had a thriving church. He writes a book called Dangerous Church to talk about that whole story. It takes risk for a person to step into middle school ministry at risk of their life to impact lives, especially when it comes to middle school girls' ministry. It's a tough, tough world for middle school girls. It is for guys, but girls, it's it's brutal. And yet I know many people who have stepped into that world and like, I have to do something, and I'm going to take a risk. He takes a risk. And it brings us to a third part of this passage. Uh, next, not only does he confront them, but he calls them to action. In, in verse 11, he says this, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say, Nehemiah. This is the rich and the powerful. Who could have pushed back? They said, okay, we'll do it. And he said, and I called the priest to ma- and made them swear to do as they had promised He calls them to action at risk of financial consequences. He calls them to erase debts. Imagine that in a modern context. On Friday, I took a screenshot of our national debt. I don't know if you know this, but it's probably up. It's been two days. Um, 34 trillion, 197, and a really big number. How much we have in national debt. Imagine if there was a leader who said, we just need to forgive all the debts right now. Imagine what that would do to our economy. Mortgages, forgiven instantly. Yay. Um, School loans, uh, 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 credit card debt, um, business debt. They just say, nope, slate's clean. Would our economy thrive in that moment? You better pull out your stocks real fast before that happens because it's going to sink a nation. And this is what Nehemiah is basically calling them to, their economy, erase all debts. Get rid of it. And they say, okay. They say, okay. It's stunning. He was looking out for those that were under the burden of the rich and the powerful. And that brings us to the third attribute, this. Good leaders defend the fringe instead of favorites. They aren't just looking out for their friends. They aren't just looking out for the rich and the powerful. Hey, guys, could you go a little bit lighter on them? Uh, He's not looking out for his besties. He's looking out for those that are forgotten, overlooked, ridiculed, and unpopular. A good leader isn't just concerned about hanging out with the richest, the best looking, the most famous. They are most concerned about those on the fringe that are overlooked and disregarded by the majority of people. That's what Nehemiah did. He looked out for those on the fringe. He could have just rolled with the rich, but he did not. He had to do something. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, I was reminded of this. I was like, How did Jesus handle these three things? Did Jesus ever face crisis? Three people said yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Humanity is on its way to hell. And he steps into it. He faced a crisis and gave his life ultimately. Did Jesus take risks? This is another one you can answer out loud. Yes, okay, yeah. 
He did. He kind of, you know, in front of religious leaders said, uh, claimed to be God because he was. That's kind of risky behavior. Uh, he challenged the religious leaders of the day. He called them out in front of everybody. That's pretty risky behavior. He also valued women and children who were just kind of like not really paid attention to. I mean, you think about the feeding of the 5,000. That's 5,000 men. That doesn't even count the women and children of that day and age because they just weren't really taken into account for. And Jesus saw them. Jesus lets children come to him. He, he has women that support his ministry. Jesus took risks. And then third thing, did Jesus defend the fringe? Yes. Lepers, tax collectors who were viewed as traitors, uh, zealots who were militant, uh, uh, sinners, uh, poor people. He even saw Zacchaeus who was short amidst the crowds. Zacchaeus climbs up, a wee little man was he into a tree, and he sees him. He calls him out. Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, was not a popular individual, was vertically challenged. And that's who he sees. That's who he sees. Yes, Jesus did all of these. He was the greatest leader to ever have lived. And we can learn from his example just like Nehemiah. As we wrap up, I'm going to challenge you. Maybe these three reasons are the exact reason why you don't step up to lead at church or anywhere else. You don't want to take risk. You don't want to be comfortable or uh, uncomfortable. All of that for this reason. It's the kids. Love it. Love it every time, man. Thank goodness for our children. Maybe these three reasons are exactly why you don't step up to lead. But you've chosen mediocrity if you, refu if you refuse to. You've chosen an average, comfortable, controlled life. You put it on cruise control. And you will not grow in your faith. Hate to tell you. God didn't call you to an office job unless he actually did call you to an office job. You know what I mean with that, okay? Second thing is this. Have you been feeling recently the tension of wanting to do something more with our church here and our ministry? Have you been feeling that tension and wanting to be a part of what God is doing? Well, then this is your wake-up call. It's time to step over the line and stop just filling a spot. Stop just being comfortable, but to do something and to be a part of something. I called us to 10, 10, 10 this year. 10 uh, salvation, 10 baptisms, 10 members. Um, and I say it for this reason. Why don't you make it your ambition to read 10 people yourself to the Lord? Like the rest of us are trying to do. Don't just expect the leaders to do it. What's your responsibility? The leaders will be doing it if you elected the right leaders. What are you doing? What are you doing? Be a part of it. My challenge for us all is this. Follow missional leaders or be one. Follow leaders who have a mission in mind. And that mission is not make people happy. That mission is do something for the glory of God. Follow them or step up and be one. Those of you that are new on leadership, it is my charge for you not to just fill a role of deacon or an elder. And just sit there, show up at your monthly meetings and do nothing. And for those that are currently on the team, it's the same thing. I don't want you to just fill a role. I want you to be on mission and fight a war with me. I want us to make a difference in our world and see what God can do. I want you to face crisis with me. I want you to take risks with me. I want you to look out for the overlooked in our congregation. And let's minister well. 
Over summer and beyond that, I want to let you know that for some of you that are like, I don't know if I'm a leader, but I would like to grow in that. I want to have some workshops, and I do intend on finding some opportunities for you to learn on how to be a better leader. And I want you to stay tuned on that. Uh, I want us to be a church. That when it comes to nominations or we're looking for a leader of a ministry or something, we're like, man, which one do we pick? Because there's like a ton here that we have as an option rather than, wow, uh, they, they're done. They've already done it. They're, they're burnt out. We need new leaders. Students in here, last thing I'll say. Learn to be a leader now and set leadership in your school. Set leadership in this church don't let people look down on you because you're young. Set an example for the believers in faith and love and in purity. All of that, that's right out of Timothy. And I want to encourage you to do it now. Don't wait till I'm old enough to do it. This is your church too. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would just help us to go out from here, to be risky uh, for your purposes, to be ones who uh, will face crisis, to be ones that will be brave and courageous as you call us to like Nehemiah was. I thank you for what we learned from him. God, may we model it as a church, and God, may you give us riches of leaders here, people that are willing to step up because there is a leadership scarcity in our world. God, bless us with it and help us to do our best with it. We commit this to you in your name. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. If you would like prayer, you can send your prayer request into prayer at gfchurch.net and we will pray for you. If you like this message, don't forget to subscribe on the podcast app, Google or Spotify. Give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you next week.